Hey, I'm Eric Huffman. I'm the lead pastor of The Story Houston, a new church taking shape right now inside the loop of the world's greatest city. For the months of May and June, we're gonna be talking about friendships and the importance of friendships. You know, when we were kids, we all knew friendships were incredibly important. We grew up though, didn't we, and something changed. We started prioritizing other things over friendships. But you know, that's not really the way the Bible says life should work. The Bible actually says that being a good friend is as important as being a good spouse or being a good parent. I hope that this series of sermons and this sermon in particular inspires deeper conversations between you and your friends that help you build the kinds of friendships that last a lifetime. My name is Eric Mingle. Some of you may remember me. I preached here about last November. Um, sometimes there's a little confusion between all the Eric's around here. I have been referred to as Eric 2.0, Eric the Lesser, and Eric the Shorter, all of those of which are okay for today. But uh, I'm a pastor at Rice University. I've been there for the last five years, and I absolutely love my job. I get to teach the Bible to the most beautiful, brilliant college students in the world, and um, I get to see them grow in their faith with the Lord and make him famous on the campus in hopes that one day, when they're scattered, they'll make him famous in all the nations. And what I'm going to do today is we're going to continue the friendship. We're going to continue the series about friendship that we've begun here. And I'm going to tell some stories from that campus. And now I'm going to talk about what the, what the mark of real friendship is. It's what we call fierce love. Not to be confused with romantic love or tough love. But what we're going to talk about is fierce love. Fierce love fights. It fights for the one it loves. Now, um, I'm, I'm not a betting man, but uh, if I were, I bet a few of you are having an old adage come to mind that says, but hey, wait a minute, I'm a lover, not a fighter. And uh, if that is the case, then I want to say, hey, that's a beautiful platitude. It's absolutely meaningless, though. <laughs> and what I mean is this, is that it's a contradiction in terms. It's an absolute paradox. Because if you love anything, if you love anything, you'll fight for it. Am I right? If you love your Spouse, if you love your husband and wife, what will you do? You'll fight for your marriage, right? If you love your country, you'll fight for your country. If you love your God, you'll fight for your God. Hopefully not with the same weapons you'll fight for your country with. Amen? But the, 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 the principle is the same. That if you love anything, you will fight for it. And that's what we're talking about this morning, fierce love. It's fierce love that fights for the one it loves, that forges true friendships. Um, slightly unfortunately, but fortunately in the long run, I had an experience. I had, a, I had a, a moment about six years ago in which I got to learn what this looked like in practice. About two in the morning, I got this phone call from a good friend from back home. Does anyone still answer their phone at two in the morning? Some of you don't answer your phone at two in the afternoon, much less two in the morning, am I right? But it's about two in the morning, and, and, and I'm not even sure that I had caller ID, but I, I rolled over and I answered the phone, and I instantly recognized the voice. It's my best friend from childhood. We grew up together. We graduated high school together, but I hadn't seen him in several years, three, maybe five years. And mind you, at this time, I live 100 miles away from where we grew up, which is where he still lives. I lived in Huntsville, Texas. It's where I went to school. It's where I met the Lord. It's where I learned how to follow Jesus. And I hear his voice in a little bit of a panic. And he says, Eric, I'm in Huntsville. I'm lost. Are you here? Oh. <laughs> well, I am here. Are, are, 
I'm surprised that you're here. What's going on? He says, well, Clay. Clay's another one of our friends from growing up. He says, Clay was actually on a date all the way in Huntsville. That must be a pretty special date. It's a 100-mile drive, right? He's like, he's on a date all the way in Huntsville, and he got two flat tires. And this date did not go real well. Actually, she pulled on the wheel when he was driving, and it bit the curb and popped two flat tires. So needless to say, by the time we got there, she was gone. He sent her home. But we got there, and Cody had driven 100 miles to bring him an extra spare tire. Talk about a good friend, right? But at this time, it's 2, 2.30 in the morning. But I knew something was wrong. I could just tell by the tone of his voice. So I said, Cody, where are you at? He described a landmark. I said, OK, stay right there. I'll be there in 10 minutes. I called one of my good friends, Steve, and I said, Stephen, can you meet me here? I explained the situation. I said, something's not right. We found Cody. Then we found out where Clay was. Clay was in front of IHOP for whatever reason. I hope he didn't go on a date there. But anyway, he's there. We go. We, 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 we get out of the car, and there's, there's Clay's car. It's got two flat tires on the same side. And then Cody pulls up in his truck. Cody gets out of the truck, takes three steps, and just does a face plant on the pavement. And all my fears came true. Something was, something was really wrong with Cody. And in utter fear, I ran over to Cody, and I dropped on my knees, and I rolled him over. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not a medical professional. I didn't know if he had a heart attack or stroke, if that was even possible for someone so young. But it was nothing like that. It was nothing so serious. Cody was just drunk. <laughs> it, it, I mean, we're not talking like tipsy or buzz. We're talking knee crawling, commode hugging, drunk. He couldn't walk five steps without falling over and, and kissing the pavement. Has anyone ever been there? Good, don't answer that. <laughs> what I meant to say was, have you ever known someone to be there? <laughs> Well, that's where Cody was, and, and instantly I knew, yes, something is, something is definitely wrong. Cody drove 100 miles here. I don't know how he made it there, but I knew one thing, he wasn't making it back. And so I said, Stephen, you take care of those tires. I'm going to go talk to Clay, and me and Clay are going to figure this out. I go to Clay. Clay, this is, this is, this is bad. This is dangerous. We've got to do something about Cody. Clay just looks at me, and I'll never forget the, the stoic look he, he gazed back at me with when he said, Cody's a, he's a grown man. He's an adult. He makes his own choices, and he'll get himself home. I said, I said, he'll, he'll, he'll never make it. He'll, he'll hit a tree. He'll hit a person. He'll kill somebody. He'll die himself. He goes, I don't care. It took him four and a half hours to bring me that spare tire. I said, you called a drunk man. He goes, I don't care. I'm angry. And I'm not helping him. And it made me very angry. I wanted to break Clay in half right there. I wanted him to kiss the pavement like Cody. I know I'm not supposed to say that I'm a pastor, but it's the truth. There's a righteous indignation. And sure enough, as soon as we fixed those two tires, Clay got in his car, peeled off, took off. He was out of there. I turned to Cody. I said, Cody, you got to give me those keys, man. You can't drive. No, no one's driving my truck. I'm driving my truck. <laughs> Falls over again. Pick him back up. Cody, you can't do this. This is dangerous. You, you won't even make it out of Huntsville. I don't care. No one's driving my truck. And so I started thinking, what can we do? Can we call the cops? Can we call the cops? I mean, I mean what, what else are you supposed to do? I mean, the, he cannot do this. I don't want his life to be ruined forever. But man, if, he, if I call the cops, they're going to come. They're going to arrest him. He's going to lose his nursing license. He's not going to be able to provide for his five-year-old daughter at home. I can't call the cops. I can pray for him, right? I'm a religious person. I can pray for him. I can pray. Maybe God will heal him, sober him. At the very least, we can at least pray for him and say, you know what? God got him. Send your angels to be a hedge of protection all around his vehicle as he drives 100 miles back to East Texas. 
Now listen, I'm a man of faith, and, and I've seen God do some pretty powerful things, but I knew that that wasn't enough. But I really was racking my brain for more ideas, and I didn't know what to do. But being from Texas, you always find a way to improvise. So I just knocked him out. I mean, just knocked him out cold. He did another face plant on that pavement. <laughs> this time was because of me, though. I never, I never would have thought that, you know, watching so much WWF as a nine-year-old would ever come into handy, you know, worshiping Hulk Hogan. I, I mean, who, who would ever guess that God would somehow redeem those wasted years in front of the TV? But it came in handy that night, right? It was the hardest thing I ever had to do in my life. Not, not because Cody was, like, so big or so hard to lay hands on him, but because Cody's my best friend. I've known him my whole life. And I absolutely loved him, and it hurt me so much to hurt him. But I cared about him, and I loved him. So I knocked him out, and I, he fell out, and bent over, and I took his keys, I gave them to Stephen, I slapped him in the face, I, he came to, I picked him back up off the ground, he's like, where's my keys? I'm like, we got those, you're not getting those back, we're getting in the car. He goes, no, no one's driving my truck, no one's driving my truck. And we argued with Cody for four more hours in the parking lot in front of IHOP. Cody refused. I was so close to knocking him out again and throwing him in the bed of the truck, you know. I just didn't have any rope to tie him up. I was afraid he'd jump out while we're driving. So I can't do this. What am I going to do? So, so I said, well, IHOP's open 24 hours, and there's no one in there to bother. They're not going to kick us out. Let's go to IHOP. So we, sure enough, we went into IHOP, and, uh, and after Cody threw up all over the girls' restroom, you know, <laughs> he came out, and me and Steven already got some cups of coffee poured, but he comes and just passes out right on the table. Just takes a three-hour nap right there in IHOP. And me and Stephen just let him, hoping that maybe he'll, maybe he'll sober up. Don't know what's going to happen when he does, but 6.30 rolls around. And uh, Cody wakes up. Still refuses to get in the truck. So I called his dad. How many of you know that when you hear your dad's voice, you just say, yes, sir? Am I right? And that's exactly what Cody said. I put his dad on the phone. There's about 10 seconds of silence, and then I heard the words, yes, sir? Cody hung with the phone, and Cody got in the truck. We drove him 100 miles back home. Then we came back 100 miles. We got home at 10.30, just in time to go back to school. But I'll never forget the last words Cody said to me. He, uh, when he was walking to the truck to get in, he said, Eric, when this is over, so are we. And for all the things Cody couldn't remember <laughs> the next day, the one thing he didn't forget was that our friendship was done and that we were no longer friends. It was the hardest thing I ever did was to knock him out. It was the hardest, most painful thing I ever heard from my best friend was that our friendship was over because I had. Had I made the right choice? Or had I lost any hope of ever speaking into his life again? Had I lost any chance of maybe one day sharing the gospel with him? I really didn't know. And it, it was painful. But I still had peace. I still had peace because fierce love cares more about his friend's future than his feelings. And I did for Cody. I cared more about what he became than how he felt that day. And also, I knew this, that fierce love always forges true friendships. Fierce love always cares more about his friend's future than his feelings. And fierce love always forges true friendships. So although right then in the moment, I had no idea if me and Cody would ever speak again, I knew I had peace in my heart that I did the right thing because fierce love forges true friendships. That is the mark of true friendship. 
And because the fact that we have to distinguish it between romantic love and tough love and fierce love, it raises a more fundamental question that I actually want to start off with, which is, what is love? I know this sounds just like the most typical cliche question for a pastor to ask an audience, but I really want you to think about your definition for love right now. I think most of you probably have a pretty uh, intuitive understanding as to what love is, but if you ever try to really articulate it in a way that you're not embarrassed to say out loud, I mean, it's not that easy, actually. And in fact, I'm not a betting man, but if I were, I'd probably say that if I got all of your answers, recorded them down, and assessed them, most of your answers would say something like this, love is a feeling, a positive feeling, a really strong feeling, maybe, a, you know, something of that nature. And, and to be sure, to be sure, love is a feeling, at least it's accompanied by feelings most of the time. But I want to suggest that maybe love is more than a feeling. And I think we understand this. I mean, I mean, if love is just a feeling, would it really be fair for God to say, love your neighbor as yourself and even ex- expand that to include your enemy? Would that be fair for God to say? Would it be fair for God to say, have a positive feeling towards your enemy? Or is that not a contradiction in terms itself? What is love if it's not just a feeling? Paul helps us out in Corinthians because he wrote this poem many years ago knowing that in Texas people would get married one day and want to read it there. (laughs) So this is for you, Texas. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Let that one sink in. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes. Love always perseveres. What is Paul saying here? I think Paul is saying love is a verb. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is a choice. And again, I think we understand this pretty intuitively just because of that one command by our Lord, which was to love our neighbor as we love ourselves and even to expand that towards our enemy. Think about it for a moment. Think about it. How do you love yourself? Let me ask you, do you you always like yourself? Is anyone in here completely like you, 100% like everything you are? I mean, maybe maybe some of you do, and I'm kind of shaming you by the tone of my voice. I I don't want to do that. But if you're at all confused as to whether or not there's anything unlikable about you, you can probably just nudge the person next to you and ask them. I bet they'll tell you there's something that is unlikable, right? Am I right? So we know intuitively love does not mean a feeling because we don't, we don't always feel positive about ourselves. but the Lord says love your neighbor and your enemy as you love yourself. So it's not a feeling. What is it? Well, what do you do with yourself? What do you do with those parts of your character that you don't like? I'll tell you what you do. You always give yourself a chance, don't you? Yeah. You always give yourself a chance to change. You always save hope for your own redemption. You always give yourself the dignity of space and time to become something new. You always help yourself become likable. You always love yourself. And that's what our Lord is commanding us to do with our neighbor and our enemy. He's commanding us not to have positive feelings towards him. That would be unfair of God, and he's not unfair. But what he's doing is he's commanding us to have as much grace for them as we have for ourselves. You understand that? So what we're saying this morning is 
fundamentally, love is it's a feeling, but it's more than a feeling. Love is a choice. And where I come from, we like to say it like this. Love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of God. I'm sorry. Love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of another, for God in his kingdom. Love is an unselfish choice for the highest good of another, for God in his kingdom. And that's the kind of love that fierce love, that's what fierce love looks like, and that's the kind of love that forges true friendships. And that's what I had to do for Cody that day. But what else? What else? What about fierce love? This is what love is. This is a very basic definition, but what does fierce love do? Better question is, what does fierce love look like? And I want to suggest that fierce love looks like always telling the truth, no matter the cost. Now, I want to throw out a little caveat, okay? Uh, there are some scenarios in which you might not ought tell the truth if you're ever sitting at a table that is mixed gender and somebody says to you, Clay, wow, you're only 31? You, 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 are, you, you look like you're 25. You look so much younger than you really are. Clay would be like, well, thank you. Thank you very much, you know? But if someone looks over at you, Clay, and that one, someone happens to be a lady, and she goes, oh, well, how old do you think I look? Don't answer that question, Clay. <laughs> Refuse to answer that question. Plead the fifth on that one, always. We don't have to answer those kinds of questions, but, but we should always be willing to tell the truth when it comes to a person's character. And that's exactly what Adam and Matt did. Adam and Matt were two guys that I discipled and pastored in college. Adam was a, he was a fresh new believer. He got saved in college. He was on fire for the Lord, um, but he was brand new at sharing his faith. He really didn't know how to do it, but, but he knew he had a testimony and he was willing to share it with almost anyone. Matt, on the other hand, Matt grew up in the church. Matt went to a Christian private school. He knew all the do's and don'ts of religion, but he didn't have any real true friends. You know what I'm talking about. You've seen this before? Matt didn't have any real true friends until he met Adam. But there's more to Matt. Matt was actually engaged. Matt, uh, he decided to marry his high school sweetheart after five years of dating. That's pretty great. You know, if you can stand to be with someone for more than five years, you ought to lock that down. And that's exactly what he did. But he was a rising senior. He still had a whole other year to go in college. So what he did was decided was, we're going to wait till we get graduated and then we're going to get married. How many of you can say that is wisdom? That's pretty wise to do. College is hard enough figuring out, much less trying to do that whilst, you know, getting married. So we said, right on, Matt. That's great that you're getting married to a high school sweetheart, girl whom you love. It's great that you're wisely choosing to wait till after graduation to tie that knot. But then the other thing about Matt was Matt was also really practical. He was a business major. And Matt decided, I'm going to move in with my fiance so that we can save money for our wedding and we can start off our marriage on top of the game. To which we said to Matt, that's not that wise. In fact, some of us might even go, that's pretty foolish. That's, that's not a smart thing to do at all. Now, I want to back up for a moment, because many of you are looking at me going, is this just more the do's and don'ts of religion? We shouldn't do these things for arbitrary reasons. And I want to say it's not arbitrary at all. And this is why. It was foolish for Matt to think he could live with his fiance for an entire year leading up to marriage because they were both Christians, they both followed Jesus, and they both wanted to obey and abide in Christ. And what that meant was both of them were really desiring to wait till marriage to consummate their relationship with the gift of sex. They were, they were committed to doing 
that. They believed in it. They wanted to. But they also thought they could do that whilst living in the same apartment that was about 600 square feet, sharing the same bedroom. Can someone just say stupid? <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I'm probably offensive here. But, uh, but that's like, just like going through Lent, you know, fasting sugar with a box of Oreos on the nightstand right next to you, you know? It's just not wise. I mean, how are you Let me put it like this. If you can do that, and, and I'm, I'm not want to say it's impossible, but I want to say if you can do that for an entire year, you might not ought to marry that person because you're not meant to have that kind of moral restraint. I just want to be honest here. This is, this is a... This is a safe place, okay? All right. And Adam knew this. Adam knew this. And, uh, and he knew he should say something to Matt, or else Matt wouldn't be able to keep his commitment to the Lord and honor the Lord and honor his bride-to-be. But Adam was scared. Adam was scared to tell the truth. Adam was scared that if he told that to Matt, Matt would somehow give him the finger and run. Matt would go find some other kind of friends who wouldn't tell him how to live his life. And so, for better or worse, Adam didn't say anything. And uh, not for six months, anyway. And for about six months, they just became the best of friends. They studied the Bible together. They studied business together. They studied abroad together. They did, every, they did life together. These two guys became the best of friends. They spent all kinds of time. They went through the highs and lows, the mud and the celebrations together. They became the best of friends. And then God put his finger on Adam and said, Now. Now say something to Matt. And, and Adam just freaks. He's like, what gives God? Where, it's a little late in the game for this, don't you think? Where was this conviction six months ago? Huh? What, this is like a double standard, Lord. What are you doing to me? Mm, he wrestles with God in prayer for like two weeks, and he's just going, I cannot do this. Just, just six more months. What if I just keep quiet for six more months? Then they're going to be married. Then there will be any problems. We don't have to worry about that. What, why not? And he's wrestling, and, and then Matt... I mean, Adam comes to a, a part of Scripture where the, the Lord says, what does it profit a, a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? And with that, the Lord struck an arrow right into the heart of Adam. Because for Adam, his whole world was his friendships. Adam could be, he would, he would be monetarily poor to be rich in friends, which I want to say is a really wonderful thing. For him, he felt himself the richest man he knew because he had so many friends. But what he heard the Lord say that morning was this. What does it profit you to gain all the friends in the world, but yet forfeit the one friendship that matters most? The one that we have. And Adam knew at this moment, i got to talk to Matt. And so he schedules a meeting with Matt, and they go to Starbucks, because you know that's, coffee is the elixir of God, and he's hoping that he'll have a little bit of help if he's in the presence of caffeine. And in fear and trembling, he just tells Matt exactly what was on his heart that came from the Lord. And you know what happened? Everything he feared. <laughs> Matt threw his hands up. He goes, he goes, it's a little late in the game for this, don't you think? What was this conviction six months ago? What kind of double standard is this? And Adam's like, bro, I, I totally concur. <laughs> I totally agree, man. He goes, but this is the truth, and this is from the Lord. And you know what? Your beef's not with me. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me anything. Adam's job was to, was to be a messenger. But that was for Matt to take up with the Lord. Adam said, listen, you don't owe me anything, but you owe him everything. Go deal with God. And they went their own ways that day. And for a couple of days, there was silence. There's more silence in two days than those guys ahead in six months because they did life together. 
It was the longest two days in the world for Adam. And at the end of those two days, though, he heard a knock at the door. And Adam just knew this is it. And he walks, and it's, it's Matt. And he opens the door, and he sees this emotional gravity in the eyes of Matt that he'd never seen before. But in his hands, he saw all the personal belongings he could carry. <laughs> and he said, listen, I don't understand. I think this is ridiculous. But I trust you. I trust you. And for the next six months leading up to his marriage, his wedding, Matt lived with his brother in a filthy apartment that your dog would want to live in. And it was beautiful, and this is why. Because Paul says love is kind. Right? You remember that over here? Paul says love is kind, but he doesn't say love is nice. Now, I want to be be sure about something. Our love must be kind in the sense that it's sweet to all. The love that we have for one another must bear the aroma, the sweet aroma of life. But what that love cannot mean is that love is soft, love is tame, or love is nice, because nice has no spine. Love is kind, but it is not nice. Nice has no spine. Instead, love, fierce love, the fierce love that forges true friendships, Fierce love cares more about your future than your feelings. And it's willing to reckon with that. Fierce love cares more about your future than your feelings and is willing to look you in the eye and say, over my dead body, am I going to let you live a stupid or selfish life? Because I love you too much. Because God is too worthy of your life. And that is exactly what Adam said to Matt that day. And you know the most beautiful part of the story? Six months later, guess who was the best man in his wedding? Adam. And Matt and his bride came to Adam, and you know what they said? They said, thank you. Thank you for doing the hard thing of telling us the truth, even though it might have cost us our friendship. Because we were failing miserably in their commitment to the Lord and honoring their relationship. And the shame was eating them up inside, but they had too much pride to tell anyone to reach out for help. But because Adam loved Matt fiercely, God granted them repentance. The scriptures say that God grants us repentance. You know what repentance is? Repentance is thinking that you're locked in a room and there's no door, there's no way out. When God grants you repentance, he's showing you a back door you didn't know was there. And that's what the Lord did for Matt that day and his bride. And they said, when we decided to do this, it was the best thing that ever happened to our relationship with each other. And it was the best thing that ever happened to our relationship with God. Thank you. And can I tell you today, the three of them are still the best of friends. Fierce love had taken aim and struck again. A true friendship was forged. Finally, and in the same vein, we want to say this. Fierce love always protects, right? Paul says fierce love protects. Fierce love always protects its friends from making bad choices that lead to an ugly future. Do you know what I mean? Let me back up. How many of you have ever heard of accountability partners? 
You have one? If you've got an accountability partner, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to pull out your phone and I want you to text them. Ready? It goes like this. It's a really simple message. Everybody ready? Give me a nod. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, this is what you say. It's over. (laughs) It's over between you and me. Uh, It's not me, it's you. (laughs) Uh, I don't think, uh, I'm looking for more out of this true friendship and I don't think you have it to offer. Wow, I wish you could see your faces. You, you don't like that joke. Okay, back up. Why? Why am I being so hard on accountability partners? I'm not actually being, I don't, accountability partners are great, but here's what they're not. They're not true friendships, and this is why. They are a low-grade, cheap parody of what real friendship looks like because almost always, almost always, accountability partners are too late. And some of you know what I mean. Some of you, this is, not, this is not all of your accountability partnerships. I'm not trying to harp on this too hard, but, but listen to what I'm saying just for a moment. Accountability partners are almost always too late. 90% of them function as a priest. The person you go to and you talk to, maybe you meet once a week or once every other week. You go and you talk about the things you did or the things you didn't do. And, and, and it, it kind of acts as a confession. And, and I don't want to knock on confession. Confession is the means by which we experience the grace of God so that we can change and live holy lives. A confession is a beautiful thing, and confession can even make a friendship stronger. But it can't forge a friendship that's not already there. For that, we need more than accountability. We need responsibility. We don't just need accountability, we need responsibility. We can't just do this, let's meet up once a week or once every other week. Because you don't even have to tell the truth and nobody will know. What we need is the kind of person that we do life together with. Just like Matt and Adam did life together, we need people we can do life together. People who are always up in your business. And they don't just know what you've done after you've done it, but they know what you're thinking before you ever do anything. They're the kind of person that can look at you and say, hey, Clay, hey, brother, man, you keep thinking like that. I think you're going to find yourself between a rock and a hard place, man, and I don't want that for you. Maybe you should look at it like this, man. You see what I just did there? Fierce, I, I, I took responsibility for what he became. I took responsibility for his choices. I saved him, protected him from making bad choices that lead to an ugly life. We don't need accountability. We need responsibility. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Eros may result in naked bodies, but friendship will result in naked personalities. Eros may result in naked bodies, but friendship will result in and naked personality. So we don't just know what each other have done after it's too late, but we know what each other are thinking and we can help each other make choices that glorify God and help us to live a holy life. Fierce love protects its friends from making bad choices that lead to an ugly future. And you know what? That's what Cody was missing six years ago when he showed up in Huntsville drunk off his rocker. Cody didn't have any true friends. Cody didn't have anybody to choose for his highest good. Cody didn't have anybody to, pro- to tell him the truth. Cody didn't have anybody to protect him from making bad choices that would ruin his life and even his daughter's life. He- Cody didn't have these things. And so Cody showed up on the edge of death. But he left with a friend that sticks closer than a brother.
Three months later, after silence and the end and the death of mine and his friendship, Cody came to me and said, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry, and thank you for loving me. And then two weeks later, he came to the Lord, and he said, I'm an idiot. I'm sorry, and thank you for loving me. Do you have that kind of friend? Do you have that kind of friend who sticks closer than a brother, which is the Lord, but do you have that kind of friend in a brother and a sister? Do you have that kind of friend outside your marriage? Do you have that friendship with a coworker, with a neighbor? Do you have someone whom you do life together with? If you don't, I want to suggest that you sacrifice all things to find that kind of friend. And if it's hard, that's okay. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. What I mean is if anything is worth doing, it's worth doing even if it's hard and you're not any good at it for a little while. Put more simply, if you want a friend, you've got to be a friend. And that is hard. That requires you to be vulnerable, just like those people whom you saw in that video. But if you listen to the testimony of every one of them, it changed their life. It protected their future. It protected them from what they would have become had they not had a friend. If you want a friend, you got to be a friend. But not just any friend. you got to be a friend like Jesus. you got to be a friend like Jesus who chose for our highest good when he left heaven and took on the likeness of sinful flesh so that in solidarity and communion with him, we could find the grace and strength to change. If you want a friend, you got to be a friend like Jesus who told us the truth, not just about what God is like, that he's like a father who throws a party for even the most wayward of his children when they come home. But he told us the truth about our own waywardness, about how we had to put to death all those things that stood against God if we wanted to join that party and find our seat at the table. If you want a friend, you got to be a friend like Jesus, who protected us from our future, from becoming something beyond hope and pity when he laid down his life on the cross, not going there as the victim, but as the victor, overcoming Satan, hell, and the grave so that we could be forgiven and set free to become friends with God again. Jesus Christ is the best friend any of us have ever had. And it was him who said this, that there is no greater love than the fierce love that lays down its life for its friend. He did this for you and me. Now we must do it for them.